Well, welcome, family and friends. My name is Dirk, lead pastor here at Encounter Church. I'd like to welcome everybody watching online as well and in the upper lobby. We're so glad that you're here today and joining us, whether it's technology or here in the room. Glad that you're here. We're in part four of the series right now uh, in Jonah. It's four parts. There's four installments. You don't have to be a part of all of them to like understand what's happening here today. If you're a guest, that's great. That's perfect. We love that too. Uh, you can catch up to those on the media player, encounterchurch.org slash messages. Uh, Before we get into the content, though, of this fourth part of the story of Jonah, what I'd like to do is open up with a little story of somebody that I knew that uh, had this experience where they got to, uh, they got to share their faith uh, with one of their friends. And uh, this is one of those times that if you've been following God for a long time, I mean, you just like, oh, this is the time that you pray for and you ask God to like open up the opportunity and receptive hearts, like all this sort of stuff. And he's hanging out and then he's in her apartment and the opportunity comes up and he shares his faith with her and the hope that he has in the gospel and in Jesus Christ and the hope forever and ever, amen. Like this is the time. And then this is the moment that he's been praying for and she, she's receptive to it. And he can tell like it's sinking in, it's moving her, it's changing her. Like for the first time, she's like, She's like getting it, right? And that's just, for any of you who've been in that moment, who've been in that space where where you've prayed for and you've had, you were in like the same room across the table sharing your faith and they've received it. I mean, you know how incredibly awesome that moment is. Like her eyes now are like tearing up as she's overwhelmed with the love of God and the grace of God and the hope that she now has. And, And she goes in that moment, she's like, wait a minute, wait right here. And she runs over to grab her roommate and says, you gotta, you gotta come and like hear about Jesus the way that I'm hearing about it. Like it all, it all makes sense for the first time ever. Like I get it. And her roommate looks at her and goes, I know. I've been a Christian for years. And like the, the look of in her eyes is just betrayal. And she goes, how could you have known and not say something? Like, how have you been sitting on this, like, our entire friendship? I mean, we live together. How could you not say something sooner? And, like, that's the question for this morning. How could you know? How could you have the hope of all hopes, this endless grace and compassion, love, and not say something sooner? And I think one of the reasons, one of the ways that we kind of get there is, I'll be totally honest, um, this is, if you're just starting off on your Jesus journey, uh, this is like a warning of what may lie ahead. If you've been a Christian for a long, long time and you're like, hey, that's kind of me too. I guess I've been sitting on this for a long time. It's possible that this like, that this disease has already started to seep in and to take a hold of your heart. And it's, it's a nasty, nasty thing. And I didn't even know what to call it exactly. I just didn't, I knew how to describe it, but I didn't have a name for it until I was talking to a friend of mine earlier about this and uh, just like what this thing is and how we kind of get by with just doing like the minimum along the stuff. He goes, oh no, I, I know what that's called. I mean, we have a term for that in my office, in my, in my workplace. And he's got an MBA, master's of business. So he knows all kinds of business terms that I don't. And he goes, that right there, that's called vicious compliance. 
And I'm like, I have no idea, you know, what that is. It's vicious compliance, in case you aren't aware. It's vicious compliance is like, I'm doing what I'm doing, the very, very minimum. Not because my heart is in it. Not because I'm inspired to do the right thing. Not, not because I even think that it's the right thing. I'm doing this for the simple reason is like, she's the boss and she asked me to do it. And I don't want to get fired. That's the only reason why I'm compliant. It's the only reason why I do the absolute minimum that I do. And this thing, this disease, it is like, toxic. It is poison in a well that will spread. And so there was actually a true story of this thing. I was like looking it up for some examples. Years ago, uh, City Hall, because of some safety and liability issues, uh, City Hall required their firefighters to begin carrying uh, self-contained breathing apparatus, an oxygen tank on their back, and then masks. And you can imagine these things are huge, right? And so the firefighters are going, I don't know about this. Like it slows us down. It increases response time. It's cumbersome to carry around and we're less nimble. You know, it's like a safety thing. So the firefighters were not convinced, but it's like, what are you going to do? You can't fight city hall. I mean, this is an order from, from on high. So they had to carry these things by policy. And so they did. They did the absolute minimum. They carried the tanks on their back. They carried the masks on their calls into the structure fires, but they don't wear them. They don't put the mask on. So they get all the, the drawbacks of having to carry these oxygen tanks and none of the benefits that come along with it. It's like their silent form of protest. They're viciously compliant until City Hall writes a new policy that says, okay, you're not only required to carry it, but you're also now required to wear it in such and such event. And they kind of like spell out all these times that they have to then put on the masks. It's compliance in only the strictest sense, only the minimum sense, in the vicious kind of sense. I will do the absolute minimum and nothing more. And I would like to like humbly ask us to think about this morning as if maybe in our faith, we aren't sometimes viciously compliant with God. Like, what are you going to do? Fight with City Hall? We serve the highest authority here. And so we know we can't like go around him. We know we can't bargain with him. He will have his way. And so we'll like fall in line, but we'll do like the absolute minimum, right? Like what we'll do, we know like we're supposed to, another one of our values around here is we experience God daily. And so we know we're supposed to read the Bible and pray daily. We know we're supposed to have that devotional time. And so I'm just like, well, you know, maybe I'll just come across a verse on Instagram or something like that. And and I'll, I'll get my Jesus time that way. Assuming that in my feed, somebody's a Christian and had something insightful to say. I'll just, I'll plan on that, right? It's compliant, but only in the, the minimum strictest sense, obedience. Or sometimes what we do is we're generous. We're asked to be generous with our time, with our resources. What that often looks like is like, I'll be generous with my time and resources right up to a point. And like, this is the spot. And like, don't ask me for anything quite over that line because I have my line drawn up. I'm compliant up to a point that I can check obedience off the list. It's vicious and it's toxic. Or sometimes what we do is we're like, I'll attend I'll be a part of this worship. I'll be, a, I'll be a part of a church. I'll show up to the church. But like the heart of God, the mission of God to go and make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to, comm- teaching them to obey everything I've commanded them. I mean, that mission is far, far from. That's someone else's job. 
I'm compliant, but only in the strictest sense, only in the minimum sense. And it's vicious and it's toxic, toxic poison in the well. And there's one guy, one guy that we've been following in this Old Testament series in Jonah. This Jonah guy is so, I mean, he's like the king of all who are viciously compliant. He will do the absolute minimum no matter what. I mean, this is a a guy that is only going to go to Nineveh after he first tries to run away. And God sends this huge storm. And after he throws him overboard, he's inside of a fish. And he only prays to God after he's been inside of the fish for three days and three nights. And he only goes to Nineveh after after the fish gets sick of him. Like, like literally, like gets sick, like vomits him up onto shore, and then he goes to Nineveh. I mean, he, he shows up with a five-word message, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's five in Hebrew. It's more than that in English. I understand that. I, too, can count. I've got my fingers. It's under 10. It's fine. Right? The minimum, the minimum job required all the time. That's all he does. This This is Jonah. He's compliant in only the strictest sense. And there's just this giant, giant piece of his life and his heart that's absolutely missing. So we pick it up in the story in part four of our series, chapter four in Jonah. And we can see that his his message, 40 more days and Nineveh's going to be overthrown. It worked. Like by God's grace. And we said there was last week, there was probably a lot of reasons for that. They had those revolts and those riots of the plagues that they believed were judgments of God combined with the solar eclipse. All of this historical stuff was happening right in that time, in that era. It's probably all led up to this like, well, they, you know, God's got their attention. And then this guy shows up, starched white from the fish, from the, you know, the whale. He goes, he goes there. They were listening to what he has to say. And what's sometimes fun about this is that you can kind of look at like the uh, outside of the Bible, the extra biblical historical records of like the Assyrian people, because they also wrote a lot of things down. And you can see that right around after that solar eclipse, right around after those plagues, right around after the the historical time of Jonah, there was actually an 11-year stretch in Assyria, in Nineveh, the capital city, of calm, of peace of prosperity even for the people. And so a lot of the biblical archaeologists are like, hey, listen, I think that was the stretch that they actually, they actually put their hope in God and it, like, it worked for just over a decade. Like they, they were all in and everybody was calm. Everybody was peaceful. Everybody was happy <laughs> except one. We're going to pick it up in Jonah chapter 4. There's Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. If you like those Bibles, you take them home. We give those away every week, and we absolutely love doing that. The words are going to be on the screen behind me as well. Jonah chapter 4 starts off in verse 1. It says, but to Jonah, (laughs) what happened in this city? But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry, and he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That, th- that is what I tried to forestall by, by fleeing to Tarshish. Isn't this what I said would happen, God? You're going to save them and all these awful people that did these horrible things. And now you're saving, you're relenting, and all of this happens. Come on, God. And so we like step into Jonah's shoes here for just a moment. You can kind of understand that. Because, because Nineveh, because these people, they were awful. Right? We did say that they, that they were cruel. They had a reputation that they were cruel. They cultivated their own reputation for cruelty. Like they, they appreciated that the rest of the world, that the rest of the world knew that they were a type of people who would torture other people that got in their way. I mean, that's, they were objectively awful. 
And so Jonah, he's got kind of a kind of a right to be upset, especially because Jonah was one of these guys who was an insider. Jonah was one of these guys who was part of God's special people, one of these Israelites, one of the people that God had been carving out from the very, very beginning of time and said, no, you guys are going to be special. You guys are going to be different. My hand of blessing is going to be on you. I'm going to train you in the way of thinking and the way of living that, that I want from you. And, and it's not going to end with you. you I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to every nation. And Jonah didn't quite get that second part because he thought it like just ended with him. And he didn't quite understand when God said to Abraham way back a long time ago, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to all nations that God was actually thinking of Nineveh, of Assyria as part of that all nations. And so Jonah, he goes, he's compliant but only in the strictest sense of the word. So I think we have something to learn from Jonah. Because what Jonah had to figure out is that faith is a lot like one of these metal bars. That like faith is one of these things that, um, that if you exert enough pressure, like it'll start to bend just slightly, right? So when there's when there's a financial disaster that strikes, your behavior will start to bend. When there's maybe a relational thing that goes sour and God has your attention, like your behavior starts to bend. You'll maybe open up the word a little bit more. You'll maybe be more receptive in your prayer life. Like your heart is just open a little bit more and you start to like, okay, God, what are you trying to show me? But as soon as that, as soon as that negative experience, as soon as that painful experience is over, like it just it snaps right back. Because even though, even though your behavior is conformed, your heart is yet unchanged. So what God often does to Jonah and to the rest of us, what God often does is he takes this, and I deemed it unnecessary and also dangerous to actually get the amount of heat on this bar that would begin to, begin to melt it down and begin to change it. Because once that happens, you can imagine as the heat goes up, and, and, and melts the bar, and then you start to move it and flex it around, and it can bend, and it can shape, and you can put it into a pretzel, and then all of a sudden you let it go, and it stays exactly as it was. See, that's what Jonah was learning about faith. That's what we're all learning about faith, is that his behavior is conformed. He'll be obedient. His behavior is conformed, but yet his heart has remained unmelted. Now, this is like some upper-level Jesus-following kind of stuff here. There's Christianity. There's an extent to which there's Christianity like 1.0, which is surrender to God. It's like this 100-level, base-level stuff. And then we, we often, we learn that first. It's like you can't fight City Hall, right? You can't fight the authority on high, God. It's too much. He's too much. And so, so we, can't, we can't beat him. We'll surrender to him and we'll say, okay, what do you want from me? Eventually, after I learn that hard lesson in the whale, I'll go to Nineveh and my behavior will fall in line. But Christianity 2.0, that next thing is learning, not surrender, is learning love. 100 level is surrender, 200 level is love. Having my heart melted and looking over to the Ninevites, not with spite, with hatred, but with love. 
Now, he's got a little ways before he gets there, but listen, listen to this next line. Continuing on in uh, verse two, he says, I knew. If you're an underlining kind of person in your Bible or on your phone, you can just like highlight that one where he says, I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right? It's a sense, it's like God saying, really? Like, really, Jonah? You're going to complain that I spared these people? Like, really, Jonah? Come on. Is it right for you to be angry? See, something was going, something was going on with Jonah, like why he didn't get it, why his heart wasn't melted, why his behavior conformed, but his heart was far from God. And I think it's like this. It's smoke from a fire. Uh, some of you know that expression where there's smoke, there's fire. It's very insightful. You should write that one down as well. I mean, it's super good stuff. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll say it like this way. It matters in our spiritual lives like this. I cannot stand the sound of my smoke detectors. Like the chirping that goes off. I mean, it's so, it's always like 2 a.m. to say I've got a low battery. Never like during the day or the evening when it's convenient, but it's always the middle of the night. Change my battery or else, you know, you're not getting any sleep at night anyway. It's just the most annoying thing. And then when I leave something in the oven too long and the house fills up with smoke and they're like, they're all blaring at me, like that noise is just, that's awful. I can't stand it. But when I got to that episode of This Is Us where Jack dies in the house fire, some of you know what I'm talking about. I changed, you can ask my wife, I changed all the smoke detectors in my house. Because even though I can't stand the sound of a smoke detector going off, I love my family. And I want to know at 3 a.m. if there's smoke. Because where there's smoke, there's fire. You get it too. So what Jonah, what Jonah's got going on here is we see the smoke, but we have yet to figure out what the fire is. So the smoke for him is this vicious compliance. I'll do it because I'm worried about getting swallowed by a fish, like I'll do it. But as soon as the fish is gone, I'm snapping back to exactly the way I was. I'm salty. I'm bitter about this whole thing. That's the smoke. There's a fire underneath that thing for each one of us. And the fire is that Jonah, and maybe you and I, haven't had our melts, hearts melted by God's grace. Like we haven't quite realized that. Jonah tilted his hand earlier. When I asked you if you wanted to, you can write it down in verse 2. And he said, I knew. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love. I knew it, yes, but there's a difference between knowing it and experiencing it. You haven't ever done the thing where you, Jonah, put yourself in the place of the Ninevites and said, honestly, you know what? They're no different than I am. You see, for Jonah... They were in different classes. They were in different worlds. Jonah looks at the sin of, of the Ninevites, of the Assyrians, and saying, they're cruel. I'm not cruel. They worship idols. I don't worship idols. 
They do all kinds of things that are wrong. The world all hates them. The world doesn't all hate me. They're so much worse off than I am. I mean, they need to be forgiven like so much. They should be so eternal, so deeply grateful. I've only been forgiven a little. I only need to be a little grateful. Because I'm basically in. I mean, I'm one, of the special, I'm one of the special people. I grew up in church. I don't need to be forgiven that much. I mean, come on. I haven't done that all that wrong. And that's what, that's what Jonah's figuring out here. But there's this thing. I want to call us back. I know you heard it already, but I want to call us back to week one, part one, chapter one of Jonah series. We started it on the new year, so a couple of you weren't there. So I'm going to bring us, I'm going to bring us back to that one now. And say there was a takeaway, there was a line in there that says, you're never further away from God than when you're close to him and you say no. That's what Jonah had to figure out. That's what he had to learn. I say it like this. I come home, I get groceries in my car, and I'm trying to do the thing where I get like all the groceries in one. You've done it too. Spill apples everywhere. They're messing a garage. And so I go in, I call the kids, my little helpers that I made to help me with these things. And I'm like, get down here and help me carry in the groceries so I can still claim one trip, right? And I don't hear anything. I go out a couple more trips, clean it all up. I come inside. Honestly, I don't even care that much. Maybe they were outside, upstairs, I don't, down, I, who knows? They weren't around. It doesn't bother me too much. I don't think about it. Could you imagine? Could you imagine for a minute? If they're like sitting at the table eating a bowl of cereal that I bought, and I, and I say, you know, help me out, carry these groceries in from the car. Could you imagine if the big one looks at me eyeball to eyeball and just says, no. I'm a patient person, but child, at that moment, I'm done. I'm out. It's not happening. Because, because you're never further away than when you're close and just look eyeball to eyeball at your maker and just say, No. And that's exactly what Jonah has done time after time after time. He knew better. He wasn't two different classes of sin. He looks at the Ninevites as as though they're so much worse off, but he has the sin of being close to God, as many of us do. I mean, you're here after all, being somewhat close to God and looking at him in the eyeballs and just saying, no, I hear what you're asking, I just, I've given up to my line, and that's all I can do for you. I'm done. I mean, if Jonah, if Jonah knew exactly where he stood, no, not just knew, he knew. But if Jonah experienced that deep grace and endless compassion, that love of God, I think he would graduate from surrender to God to loving God's people, whoever and wherever they are. That's the thing. When when Jesus, in the New Testament, he's asked about the greatest commandment, and he says, I got this one. Love God and love others. And the way he says it, it's not like you can have one. He doesn't seem to think like you can have one at the exclusion of the other. You love God and you love others. You can't love God and then want the Ninevites to just burn down. You have to love your neighbor, even if they're Ninevite. 
Even if they're Ninevite, even if they're an atheist, even if they're a Muslim, even if they're gay, even if they're Republicans, even if they're Democrats, even if they go to church, you love your neighbor no matter what. Because once you put yourself in that place of having your heart melted by experiencing grace in your own life, man, you can't help but love the Ninevites because they're exactly like you in the same place. Jonah's getting there. He's getting there. In verse 5, we see Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. I love, like, the intentionality of Jonah. Um, that it's just every last detail is important. He sat down east of the city. That was a reference probably to, like, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden way back in Genesis. They had to exit via the east, and they settled east of the Garden of Eden, which is like this euphemism that's just outside of God's family. Like, that's where they're hanging out, but that's just bonus material for everything. There he made himself a shelter, and he sat in its shade and waited to see what happened to the city. Remember, his word was that 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He's still waiting for the fire and brimstone. He didn't know that God actually made good on that promise when like the greatest to the least repented and turned from their ways, put their hope in God. And it says that, the, that they all from the greatest to the least and even the animals like dressed up in sackcloth as a demonstration of their humility. Like that's overthrowing. But Jonah's got something else in mind and he wants a front row seat to make sure it happens. In verse six, he's waiting. And then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah's very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm. God's just messing with him now. (laughs) Which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is. He said, I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. (laughs) And that is a tantrum right there. That's what that's called. This is the moment in the story that if you're his counselor and you're just like listening to him describe this tale and you're just laughing, right? Like you've got to be kidding. Only you realize that Jonah's not laughing. And so this is what my pastoral care class has taught me to do. You just look at him and you say, it sounded like the plant was very important to you. (laughs) Now you got empathy in a line. Verse 10. That's all I'm saying about that. Verse 10. But the Lord... But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? And also so many animals. You care about the plant, Jonah? There's 120,000 people. The euphemism that don't know their right hand from their left, that, that euphemism was one to describe little kids who haven't learned their left and rights yet. God's saying there's 120,000 children in this place that I just saved? 
And you care about the plant? What about the animals, Jonah? Do you care at all about the cows? And you, you think it's there maybe for like comic relief. Like God is drawing this distinction. But I actually think that there's a part of it that, that means it, he means it earnestly. Because Jonah is an intentionally written book. And Jonah is so intentional. I think he's actually foreshadowing like this Romans 8 theology that says that God has in his mind the salvation and restoration, the redemption of everything. Romans 8, that all of creation is groaning like a woman in the pains of childbirth, just yearning for, for the coming of the kingdom, for this all to be over and for everything to be set back right again. That God is saying, what about the 120,000? What about the cows? What about the city? What about this entire planet that I have not neglected and forgotten about? I will not forsake it, Jonah. Do you care at all about what I care about? Or not? We'll just read the next verse to find out what happens. That's the last verse. <laughs> just ends. It was too intentionally written of a book for this to be an accident, to run out of ink. They didn't just all of a sudden stop. This was their tradition. This is what they did. This is what Jesus did. He tells a story about two, two kids, two sons. One of them was a screw-up, moved away, wasted all of his dad's money. He came back. The dad, the dad celebrated and threw a party. The older son, who never screwed up, walks away outside. He's done. He's like, Dad, how can you, how can you welcome this screw-up kid back? His dad is outside pleading with him, son, please, please come back in. There's a party. Please come and celebrate with us. For this son was dead and now he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And it just ends. We never find out what happened. And you get this sense that Jesus is saying, how would you end it? Did you get there? With your life? Life this week? Your lives? Will you live that this week? Does Jonah get it? Doesn't matter. Question is if you do. Get the mission of God. It's a big mission. Jonah is such an intentionally written book that the word great is used over a dozen times, a dozen that I just counted, a dozen times in the Hebrew language. In just this little part, I wrote some of them down where it starts off in just the second verse of the book. And God says, go, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a great storm. The men were greatly afraid, but then the men greatly feared the Lord. And the Lord appointed a great fish and said, go again to that great city. Jonah went to city and it was an exceedingly great, in their language, it was a great, great city. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least and Jonah was glad, greatly glad because of the plant, right? It's just like repeated and repeated and repeated. And you're like, you get the sense that the mission of God and the story of Jonah is that God has great things in mind. That the wickedness of, of Nineveh was great, but God's mercy was greater, and for our purposes, the name of the book, remember, is not Ninevites. That's not what we call it. We call the name of the book Jonah 
Because we're looking at this wayward prophet uh, and we're saying, you know what? The way he strayed away from God was a big deal. It was great. But God's compassion to Jonah, his grace to Jonah was greater still. It's the mission of God. It's this great big mission of God to call up all his people and all of his, his, his creation all back to him and restore it greatly from the top down, from the bottom up. And he's still got a great mission ahead of us here today because we've still got this great mission of something like four and a half billion people who don't know Jesus yet and don't have that hope yet. And the story of Jonah kind of begs the question, church, do you care? Do we care about that great mission of God? And he just ends it there. One person did care greatly. She stood at an oppressive four foot three. Born in 1840, her name was Lottie Moon. She said yes to God, even though she wanted to have a husband and a family and kids in the States. She believed saying yes to God also meant saying yes to a call to tell the people in China, mainland China, about God, where they had no idea yet. And so she served for decades tirelessly trying to tell them about Jesus in the clearest terms that, that she could come up with. And, you know, she never really had a lot of headway there, like not a lot of progress. Until this one time that the pastor of this little house church where she was involved in, she came across that pastor had gotten arrested and this, uh, this uh, military officer was, was beating him. And so she goes up, she stands four foot three, right? She stands in between the pastor of this little house church and the guy beating him. And she says in Chinese, she says, beat me instead. And the guy is just upset. He's angry. He tries to push her out of, out of his way. But witnesses around say the look on her face was like supreme like calm. And she just says again, beat me instead. And the, and, and the officer, the guy, not really knowing what to do with this bizarre, bizarre scene, he just drops his weapon and runs away. She takes him down, gets him, uh, gets him cleaned up, brings him to the hospital in the next town over. She's gone attending to him for weeks, comes back to their little house church. It's just exploded to hear about this little woman who asked the official to beat her instead. And she had the opportunity in a way that they could understand to see that's what Jesus has done. That for us this morning, that Jesus has gone into the belly, not of a whale, but of the grave for three days and for three nights so that we wouldn't have to. And that changes us. The belly of a whale will coerce our obedience, will force it. But seeing the face of Jesus who would be beaten on our behalf so we wouldn't have to, that will inspire our obedience, that melts our hearts. Lottie enjoyed a huge amount of ministry success leading all of these people to faith until a famine breaks out. And there's, like not, like, there's not enough food to eat but she's giving away her meals, withering away, giving away her meals to her Chinese brothers and sisters in the faith, begging 
begging there as Americans to, to do more, to provide more. She's withering down, they said, on her deathbed where she died of starvation. She was down to a little over 50 pounds. And a nurse attending to her said she was singing, Jesus loves me. And then she started saying the names of each of the believers that she knew that went on ahead of her. And in the traditional Chinese greeting, she'd clasp her hands and open them again. And another name, and another name, and another name. Until one day she clasped and opened and said no name. And her nurse, who was a believer, said, it was at that moment that I believe she got to see her Savior face to face. That's inspired obedience, not coerced. That's belonging to the great, great mission of God. The mission that he has given, he's entrusted each one of us with here today. So go, <laughs> make disciples. I invite you to stand up and let's pray together. Our gracious God, there's such a part of us this morning that maybe we haven't had our heart melted by experiencing your grace. Maybe like Jonah, we have these seasons where we don't see ourselves as bad off. We don't like to talk about our shortcomings. We don't like to talk our, about our failures or admit our sin. But God, when we do, we're not met with shame and condemnation in you, far from it. We're met with endless compassion and forgiveness, acceptance of where we are, but a bold love that doesn't leave us there. God, may we hold on to that hope. Jesus, may we hold on to you and your great mission this week. In your name we pray. Amen.